I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. The hit movie Wolf of Wall Street, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, portrayed crook financial traders in a way that you either loved them or hated them. My guest today was in the thick of those characters in real life. He stole millions of dollars to finance a luxurious lifestyle that lasted for many years. This man had it all, but he lived with a guilt that led him to give it all away before he was arrested and imprisoned. The private jets, Lamborghinis, priceless art and luxury homes were replaced with a prison cell. A white-collar criminal is often depicted as different from the common drug dealer or thief, but they all have one thing in common, a criminal record. Richard, thanks for coming on my podcast, Second Chance. It's really interesting. It's fascinating to be able to sit here and talk to a man who once owned tens of millions of pounds, drove around in Ferraris, spent time with supermodels, did what lots of young men want to aspire to. They think having lots of money, fast cars is the sort of pinnacle of their desire, especially if that's what they're seeking from in life. Tell me about that lifestyle first and how you got to live that lifestyle. Thank you so much, Raphael, for having me on and a chance to chat uh, with the folks who are following you. I'm from New York in the United States. While initially I went to university to study journalism and expected that to be my path in life, I, I guess I wasn't quite the, uh, the writer as others Uh, Or more probably, I just didn't have the patience to let that all play out because I saw, you know, lots of young guys like myself who were driving around in Porsches and hanging out with the prettiest girls and going to the hottest clubs 
and renting houses in the Hamptons, which is where everybody goes in New York in the summer, and it's a playground for the rich and famous. Uh, and I wanted in. So I knew a lot of people working on Wall Street at the time. This is the late 80s. And I was able to secure a position at a couple of different large investment banking firms. And I discovered I did quite well there. Uh, and I started making a lot of money. Um, but things really took off when I began working at a small um, investment firm. And the first time I went to visit the place, I saw lots of guys much younger than me who were working very, very hard and were very, very aggressive on the phone. And they never put the phone down. They just kept going and going and going. And, you know, I could tell that compared to where I had come from, these fancy investment banking firms where everybody had an incredible pedigree, these guys were nothing like that. They were folks who, you know, spoke roughly and coarsely and were much better salespeople than they were financial analysts, certainly. But what I saw, which got me very excited, is they'd be engaged in a phone conversation and then they would essentially make the sale and they'd slam down the phone and then they would shout it out. And then there would be a chorus, you know, of high fives and everybody very, very excited. And I came to learn that in that brief phone call, this guy who barely could complete a sentence who spoke roughly and not very intellectually, had spent 15 minutes on the phone and just made $20,000. That was a revelation to me. And whereby it was not hard for me to connect the dots and say, well, I'm a pretty good salesperson. I'm a hard worker. And I know an awful lot about the financial markets. I have a level of sophistication that most of these guys don't have. I probably could do very well here. And I knew a few people who were working there. So in short order, I began working there. And the name of the company is Stratton Oakmont. And for those of your listeners who go to the movies, this was the firm that was memorialized in Martin Scorsese's movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, Leonardo DiCaprio, et cetera, et cetera. In short order, I became a partner there. You know, I was having a lot of success. And I was involved with managing the place. And certainly I was thick in or knee deep in all of the insanity that was going on. And when you say insanity, are we talking about criminal insanity in terms of what was being done to make money? Or was everything sort of above board? Because the Wolf of Wall Street depicts a lot of criminality or at least you know, the mis-selling or mis-buying, however it works. I don't understand the, the financial world. But when you say insanity, what are we talking about, Richard? Well, the insanity manifests itself in several ways. So to address your question, uh, impropriety takes many forms. Number one, there is market manipulation, um, whereby, you know, an individual or a firm is controlling stocks going up or down. And they're able to do that a variety of ways. Some are technical, some are purely on the basis 
of there's more demand chasing small supplies. So we were dealing in small capitalized companies that were easily easily manipulated. And we had this big, massive, uh, high-performing sales force that could create a huge amount of demand and just as quickly um, retreat, you know, and leave stocks that were pushed up high to drop precipitously when the demand goes to zero. So we were doing that, and that's illegal. We were um, certainly engaging in sales practices, you know, whereby we would make things up or we would engage in the highest, you know, sales pressure. And we were very, very good at it. And we were trained at it or trained to do it by, you know, a, a master salesperson. That was the president of the firm who was depicted by Leonardo DiCaprio. The actual person's name was Jordan Belfort. And he um, was your partner. I was a junior partner. So there were about five or six junior partners. And then he was at the very top. So uh, I, I was thoroughly engaged in much of this. And, you know, I was fully aware of what I was doing and what we were doing and that that it was on a variety of levels, uh, at least in proper, just from a sales practice point of view, I knew what we were doing. You know, it was interesting because in addition to, to you know, behaving improperly, which we did and I did uh, knowingly. So I have no excuse. I was just greedy. Period. I was greedy. That's my excuse. You know, they would call us this boiler room operation. You know, the boiler room operation with guys who had Lamborghinis parked in the parking lot, you know, wearing gold Rolex watches. And we were just really hard workers who figured out how to do things. And some of it was illegal and some of it was just a function of really working very harder, way harder than, you know, normal. But you know, certainly I knew what we were doing was wrong, you know, and I take full ownership for it and I have no excuses for it. And this was 1990. So from, you know, that's 30 years ago. And yet every day I wake up in the morning with this sinking feeling in my gut of sadness of decisions I made and things that I regret. What what drove that greed then? Because as you say, as a, a financial analysis or, 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 you know, as a professional who had a good education, you were capable of doing this legitimately and probably earning a huge amount of money anyway. So what drove maybe, the- maybe you know, that, I, you know, to make this sort of money would have taken me years and years if it were to occur. Here, it was available immediately. And... I would dare say that many, many, many people, given the opportunity to, you know, cut some corners and, you know, make it right now in the here and now would opt to do that. But needless to say, it's wrong. It's bad. I, you know, and I, and it, it's not something I recommend anybody doing. When you're talking about insanity, the other, there was other insanity though. A lot of that other insanity was fueled by drug use. We all took a lot of drugs. Part of it, I suspect, was to numb ourselves to the guilt and, you know, the reality of what we were doing. You know, some of the guys there, and most of them were guys, 
you know, some of them were young and so inexperienced, they may not even know there was really something wrong going on there, for all I know. But certainly enough of us did. And, you know, from the top down, we just took a lot of drugs. Uh, and, and in doing so, and in leading this life, we had unimaginable fun. And we used to, you know, travel, you know, on private jets and go to exotic locations where, you know, the management of these places would roll out the red carpet and we would take over places and casinos and hotels and restaurants. And, you know, we were obnoxious that I really regret. And we treated people rudely and with a lack of respect. And I really regret that, too, because we just thought we were so important and that rules didn't apply to us. But we also had an enormous amount of fun. You know, we were all just completely enthralled with the wealth we were acquiring and the toys we were buying and the partners that we were able to connect with. And, you know, other than the fact that it was all based upon illegality, it was all pretty good. You and you've got a big smile on your face, um, sort of remembering, yeah. no doubt. It, although it was 30 years ago, I can still see the sort of smile on your face and the joy in your voice, actually, as you reflect on the past, even though it was all through ill-gotten gains. Um, it is your past. It is who you were it's interesting. One of the things that you said was about the guilt that you felt, even though you felt the guilt, you still went back and did it every day. So it was the power of money, the power of, of the drugs, the power of the lifestyle that suppressed that guilt. I don't I don't want to say something that makes it sound like I'm any better than I was, because as far as I'm concerned, you know, what I did was completely wrong. And, you know, and again, I have, you know, just so much regret and I've dedicated my life partially to try to karmically, if nothing else, try to offset the stuff that I regret. So I don't want to suggest that I'm this really wonderful guy, but it was cognitively dissonant, shall I say. Because on the one hand, I enjoyed the fine things. And on the other hand, there was a part of me that really wouldn't let me fully enjoy it as much as others seemed to be able to do. There was a time when you left the, the firm that was depicted by the Wolf of Wall Street. Just tell me a little bit about, about that. And was this at the height of you making lots of money and enjoying life? The answer is yes. I was doing very well at that firm, but I had an opportunity along with another guy to move to Florida and to start our own firm. And um, we did that. We acquired a tiny little firm and we began building that in the image of the firm that we had just come from. And in fact, we were sort of all in cahoots with each other and doing deals together and helping each other, you know, pursue our nefarious goals. And it grew and it grew and it grew. We very quickly, we had about 500 people working for us. We had offices around the country. And, you know, we were doing about $100 million a year in business. Yeah, so it was big and, and it dwarfed, 
you know, what I was doing and my income, you know, previously. You know, now I was really putting away a lot of money. And now I was buying art and buying homes on the beach and, you know, the fanciest cars and donating money to charity and doing all kinds of, you know, all the trappings of a, of a wealthy person in Florida. Who, who were your victims? Who were you taking this money from? We were purposely targeting wealthy individuals because they had money. And as they say on Wall Street, it's just as easy to write a ticket. A ticket is like if you're buying stock that you submit for the purchase, it's just as easy to do it for a thousand shares as 10,000 shares. It's just one more zero. So what, what I discovered was that at least in the United States, there are millions of wealthy people, mostly men again, who play the market very, very aggressively and are eager to get tips, inside information, whatever. And so the people we were working with, um, we sort of came to believe were as just as greedy and, you know, uh, we were not particularly deserving of any, but it was us versus them in a zero-sum game. And since we were the house, ultimately we knew we would win. And they might think that they were clever, and we might let them think that they're clever for a little while, but ultimately we would have the last left. Because when you deal with folks who really have no money and you take advantage of them, it takes things typically to a whole other level. You know, that's the stuff that really can quickly get you in trouble. Whereas if you're dealing with sophisticated investors who have a long track record of being in the market and winning and losing and whatever, it's a lot easier to defend your activities. Doesn't mean what you did was right by any means, but, you know, it's, it, it, you know, and certainly in the media, it's a lot less damning, you know, than if you really put someone out of their home. Again, at the risk of suggesting like I am innocent or don't take full responsibility, I ended up paying everybody back. Um, my partner and I, when we felt the heat was coming, um, you know, and these are things that you can sort of feel. What, what, what led to that? What, what, I mean, I mean, you were enjoying life, making lots of money. You were conducting these criminal sort of fraudulent acts. What brought you down? Throughout the United States, you know, we have 50 states and each state has its own securities regulators and they start digging and investigating. And, you know, if you dig into any company like this, there will be improprieties. And we certainly had no lack of them to share, you know, to see. So they would start bringing, action, you know, legal actions against us or banning us in the state. And that just is a avalanche eventually where it just becomes harder and harder and harder to operate um, as compared to being brand new at it. Can I ask, Richard, why when you were making so much money doing the illegal activity, don't people in this position make the decision to go as as legitimate as they possibly can? Because they've committed the initial criminal acts that's made the fortune. Well, here's a chance where you could have done everything above board. Now you've made your money and could, 
you know, avoid detection? Why, why is that not possible? Even though you have this criminality hanging behind you, which will eventually catch up with you, there right. is and was an opportunity for you to go legitimate to avoid detection. I don't think it would be to avoid detection. I think it would be an opportunity potentially to just sort of limit your criminal liability, your criminal culpability and say, I've seen the light. But at a certain point, there's an inexorable feeling that you're on this path and it's just a question of not if, it's when. And we felt that way. To say nothing of the fact that if you've committed a crime, it doesn't matter what you're doing today. If you did it yesterday, you are liable for it, you know, and you can be in trouble for it. And our feeling always was that we needed to keep this vast machine going because it would, at the very least, provide, you know, the the, the resources to defend ourselves and that if we stopped that, you know, because we were just paying millions of dollars in legal fees and settlements and fines and all kinds of things. And yeah, I mean, I look back and I say, my God, you know, I mean, for example, in Miami Beach, the real estate market there exploded. And there was a time that I could have bought up blocks and blocks of property. And I would be a multi-billionaire today from those investments. And we didn't do it. Do I wish I did? Of course. But you would have done that with with illegal money and it would have probably been taken away from you. That's possible. But that I mean, that wasn't even part of the calculus. It's just more, you know, that you're in damage control. You know, you're on a life raft that is leaky and you're just sort of bowing like crazy to stay alive. And at the same time, we have this big firm with lots of people who have a lot who know a lot of things. And we've got to make sure we are, you know, supportive of them because we don't want to in- incur problems with people who could further bring us down. You know, so, I mean, listen, the whole thing, you know, stinks at the foundation. I will say, however, that I def- I personally definitely was trying to exonerate myself or rehabilitate my image. Um, A, out of guilt, you know, in other words, again, I did things I was ashamed of. Now I want to do things I'm proud of. And I ended up getting involved in a variety of philanthropic, you know, endeavors and donated a lot of money to charities. And I did it because, A, I wanted the world to see me differently and in a way more in line with how I deep down inside saw myself, which was as a... I mean, we all see ourselves as good people. Or or maybe, maybe some people may have seen that as you plot in the future that when your trial eventually came, you could say, I was a good guy. I tried to do good things. It was all, you know, so there were, you know, it was in our enlightened self, it was in my enlightened self-interest to do this. Absolutely. I wanted to, as I said, I wanted to mitigate and exonerate my image, you know, for a variety of reasons. I lived in Miami. Miami's a small sort of place. It's not like New York, you know, and wherever you go, you know, people know you. And I was certainly a high profile person there. As a matter of fact, to me, the whole uh, the whole time is best described. I went into a diner 
I don't know if you have diners in the UK. They're like sandwich shops or whatever. And people sit at a counter, you know, and there may be 20 people sitting at the counter having lunch or drinking coffee or whatever. And there was this publication that came out once a week that was sort of uh, like a muckraking, you know, did investigative journal, you know, really tawdry investigative journalism. And I had become a target of theirs because it was a great story. I was a high profile guy. What I haven't told you is I also owned like the hottest nightclub on South Beach and I published a magazine. And so I was a high profile guy. And um, I walked into this coffee shop and apparently they had just distributed copies of this free publication that comes out once a week. So at the coffee shop, I walked in and it looked and my picture, a caricature of me was on the front cover. And there was a story inside all about me. And I walk in and it, I look at the place and every single person is sitting at the counter holding this publication in their hands, reading while they're having their coffee or eating. And again, on the cover is a caricature of me. And I walk in and I see 20 people reading this thing. And I, of course, retreated and got the hell out of there because that was so embarrassing and awkward for me. You know, that was a miserable part of the whole experience was all this terrible attention that I had generated uh, for myself. So in any event, you know, in my attempts to, again, make myself feel better, to offset, you know, what I knew to be things that I had done that were bad and I regretted, and also hopefully to have people look at me, including potentially the judge one day, um, look at me in a different light, that I wasn't an entirely bad person, I gave away millions and millions and millions of dollars. And in fact, I ultimately, prior to my sentencing, I gave away every penny I had and I sold everything I had. And I had an an extensive art collection. I had a home next to where Eric Clapton lived um, on the beach. And I had all these possessions and jewelry and all kinds of junk. I sold everything and literally gave it all away. What did you stand in the dock accused of and what, what, what sentence did you get? So um, I, my firm was an operation for me from 1991 to 1997, more or less. I left in 1997. My partner continued working there. I just couldn't take it anymore. And in 2001, I think, maybe four years later, I knew eventually the authorities would come knocking on my door. And I knew it because... All the other people in whom, with whom we were in cahoots, including the Wolf of Wall Street firm and all of them, they had their day and they were already in trouble and some were locked up and et cetera, et cetera. So I knew it was just a question of time, they, you know, which was an awful way to live, needless to say. You know, you're on the phone and you hear the phone clicking because someone's listening in. Or, you know, you're talking to people and you get the feeling they're trying to get you to say things so that they could have information on you that they can use to negotiate because they're in trouble. Um, Or you walk into the bank and you see the bank tellers whispering because, you know, there's an investigation going on regarding your financing. So, you know, when something is up and I knew that it was. 
and I was uh, uh, involved in a company. We were doing a marketing company, and I was sitting in my office one day, and two people walk in and knock on my office door, and they go, may we speak with you? And I had no idea who they were, and I said, can I help you? And they both opened their coat to reveal that they had badges at their belt along with a pistol. You know, this is what I was waiting for. And on a certain level, I was sort of relieved, you know, because waiting for this to happen is a terrible, terrible way to live. Why, why didn't you take the money and run, run so far that they couldn't find you? Or if they did, you well, would... I had given it all away, number one, so I didn't have any money. You as gave the money away. What, what sort of money are we talking about you gave away? Tens of millions of dollars. When you say gave it away, that sounds like you just went in your pocket as you do see a homeless person on the street and just give them. No, a few. you couldn't possibly do that quickly enough. No, I, I had, I was, I was the chairman of the Miami City Ballet. I was on the board of the Museum of Contemporary Art. I gave money to things anonymously, and I wrote checks for millions of dollars. That's what I did. And and, uh, and was that in preparation for your release of? any charges or imprisonment so that when you came out, you could go and ask for that piece of art that was worth five millions. I mean, what was the, the motive behind giving? I told you, I told you a, I felt guilty of what I'd done. And this made me feel a little better instead of dealing with all these awful people with whom I was doing business with. Now I'm dealing with nice, respectable people and I'm helping kids who, you know, at the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and I'm helping arts organizations, and I'm helping, you know, police widows, and all kinds of other, you know, situations that but I would although, have. Although that's, a, that, although that's a great thing to be doing, you were doing it with ill-gotten gains or illegal money, or was this money that was generated? Some re- was, some wasn't, you know. Okay. Our, our operations weren't entirely illegal. And every penny we made wasn't ill-gotten, but I, I couldn't begin to tell you what what portion of is which is which. But all I know, it was I owned it and I gave it away. And I did it again because, A, it made me feel better about myself. And I was riddled with guilt and shame. And I also thought it was would, would potentially be in my interest. You know, this is, and again, this is after paying everybody back. Um, so nobody at that point had any losses. Now they went through. When you say pay everybody back, so all the people that you'd scammed out of money, you paid back? Yes. Oh, really? Yes. How, how was that possible? We set up a large pool of money and we notified every investor we ever had. And we said to them that if you believe you suffered losses, please contact this attorney and we're prepared to make you know restitution. And we never at any point fought anyone over it. We never. And, and again, these are people who are not necessarily all above reproach, but we knew we couldn't start, you know, choosing or whatever. If we were going to do it, we had to do it. So my partner and I created this fund and we paid everybody back. So we paid everyone back. We paid huge fees, um, fines and settlements and lawyers fees. 
And, um, and then whatever I had left, I still had millions and millions. I gave it all away to charity, whereby I had zero by the time I was sentenced to go to prison. I literally had nothing left. You stood in the dock. What was you accused of? What was your crime? Securities fraud, basically. The, 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 the judge certainly found my case uh, peculiar. He said that I've never had a white-collar case like this, that there isn't money that's been stashed somewhere, but we've thoroughly investigated, and as you've said, there is no other money. And then they give you an opportunity, it's called the elocution, that prior to the judge's sentence, you're allowed to sort of speak whatever you want to say and speak in your own behalf. And at that point, you know, I had the opportunity. I was very, obviously very emotional. I stand up in a federal court and I'm talking to the judge about how, you know, what I did, I take full ownership for and I have enormous remorse and this, you know, and that prior to even being arrested, we paid everybody back because we knew what we had done was wrong and we wanted to do the right thing. And then whatever I had left judge, I donated to, to charity. And he said, well, um, I have never, ever seen a case like this. Um, I commend you for paying people back. And then he specifically said, like you just said, the money you gave to charity wasn't yours to give away. So I said, that may be true, Judge. I don't know, but, you know, I could have held on to it or not. I chose to not hold on to it. Well, I'm sure the charities were, were very grateful, um, especially given that, yeah. as you say, most of your victims, and this is not me justifying, but most of your victims were very wealthy anyway and probably would have spent that on jets and models and Ferraris. Just tell me briefly, I want to get on to what you do today because I think that's important because that's another turning point. But just tell me briefly, as a white-collar criminal who was living the life that, that lots of people aspire to live, what was prison like for you? Because although that judge took um, some gratitude in what you did with the money, giving it to charity, paying everybody back, not stashing millions for your eventual freedom, what, what was prison like for you and how long were you sentenced to? One of the ways they calculate your sentence, obviously, is, you know, in a financial crime like this, you know, is how much damage have you created? How much did you take? How much have people lost is obviously an important consideration. In my case, people hadn't lost anything. Because you were smart to give all the money back. I, I, I wouldn't use the adjective smart in describing my behavior throughout all this. But in any event, it, it, it worked in my favor, certainly. So I received a 22-month sentence. Uh, and, and because of the relatively short duration of my sentence in the, in the United States federal system, they have levels of security, you know, based upon the crime you committed and how long your sentence is. Mine obviously was at the very, very low end. There was no violence involved, no firearms, no, I had no record at all. So I was treated, you know, as leniently as the law would allow. So I was sent to what's called a, a federal prison camp. And relative to some of the places in the United States, certainly it was very palatable. 
and going away for 22 months, it's uh, a challenge, obviously, and it's no fun, obviously. And at times it's depressing and miserable and incredibly boring and all these other things, you know, where you don't really see what am I getting out of this whole thing and whose interests are being served. Nonetheless, it could have been so much worse, uh, you know, an order of magnitude of 10 times. So I knew I had it pretty good. What's more interesting, Richard, although you didn't experience the maximum prisons of the United States or the violent prisons, what you did, from what I understand, is you learned something about yourself. But more importantly, I would argue, about other people. And by other people, I mean other prisoners. You were now in an environment where people had never had lots of money, did not have the opportunities in life that you would have had did not fly around in in jets, etc. Whether these were guys who were coming to the end of long sentences and maybe being been moved to these sort of open camp conditions, what did it do for you in who you become and what you're doing now? I mean, certainly, I was living now with folks that with men, you know, that weren't part of my social circle heretofore. Absolutely. And, you know, when you're living on top of one another, you get to know people very, very well. And it really made me rethink my ideas about morality. You know, the tendency is to look at things in very black and white terms. People in prison are monsters. People who haven't committed a crime are much, much better. It gave me an opportunity, though, to examine myself more. And in doing so, I recognized how my ego was really informing, you know, my actions and controlling it and my desire to be a big shot and have prominence. And, you know, who knows? I was trying to impress my father who long ago died anyway. You know, whatever the psychological reasons that that explain my behavior, you know, bottom line was I came out of prison destitute and homeless let me let me let me just challenge you on that not not from my perspective but there will be listeners who think yeah right you don't have hundreds of millions of pounds give away millions of pounds go to prison for I a didn't few. have a dollar <laughs> that, that's so money. interesting because people don't want to believe that that can that, be true okay. I get that I understand if you if you knew me um if, you know because if you were a friend of mine or my so-called friends I was trying to borrow money from everybody you know, and all these folks who were my best friend and would have done anything for me back in the day when I was rich and powerful and famous disappeared. So, you know, they, my family could certainly attest to the fact my sister on, on whose couch I lived for a long time. Thank God. Um, I had no home. I had no job. I had no nothing. And I had no idea what to do with my life, but that I, I was changed and going through prison provided a benefit for me. It really made me understand why I was acting the way I was and who I wanted to be. We all try to be happy. And the way my path to try to do it through money and power, you know, all kinds of stuff like that and disrespect didn't bring me happiness at the end of the day. It brought me sadness as well as prison. So, you know, I came out as a person who, you know, realized, you know, that number one, that's not the path for me to bring me happiness. 
yeah, it was fun, but ultimately it brought me a lot of sorrow, you know, or I brought me a lot of sorrow in that path. And what I did discover I wanted to do was I wanted to help other people coming out of prison because I was in prison. Some of them were, some of the guys were white collar guys like me, but the most of them were young men of color who didn't have the benefits that I did. And when they would come out of prison with no education and no no job experience, if it was hard for me, what must it be for them? And I can't, you know, and I'm I'm looking at the miserable state of reentry in the United States where the rate of recidivism, you know, the rate upon which someone released from jail or prison will return. In the United States, it's 75%. Three out of four people are released only to end up coming back time after time after time. And this whole sort of cycle just keeps rolling around generation to generation and with no end. And I felt like we need to short circuit this. We need to shake things up and do it differently. I launched a company called 70 Million Jobs. There are 70 million Americans with records that we were going to be the first for-profit employment platform for people with records. And we were successful in facilitating employment for thousands of deserving men and women. Uh, Unemployment um, directly correlates to recidivism. If you don't have a job, you will break the law. If you have a job, these folks almost never, ever break the law again and live happily ever after. So employment is the silver bullet. And that's what we were attacking. We got more people, more jobs than anybody. And things were going well, and we were starting to make money. But then the coronavirus hit in March, and that changed everything. Because companies laid off all of our people virtually overnight, and our business overnight went to zero. You know, at that point, we had a decision, either sort of pack up our bags and, you know, call it a day, or go to plan B. And we chose, when I say we, my team and I chose to go to plan B. And um, that was to build something that had been a dream of mine, the first social network for this population. Sort of like Facebook for ex-cons, if you will. And we call that Commissary Club. And we launched that about a month and a half ago. And it is a roaring success. Because folks with records um, up until now had no place to come to connect with one another. You know, people with records often lead these very sort of solitary lives in the shadow, out of shame, out of fear of getting in trouble again, whatever. But the, the understandable, certainly, but the problem is, is they never come together And they never are in a position to speak with one voice and assert their collective strength. So um, that's what we're doing. And it's very, very exciting. And it sounds like a really interesting movement. So what's the ultimate aim of bringing these people together on a social media platform to discuss and, and move forward what idea? There exists in this population, and I dare say it's a global condition, but certainly in the United States, there's a connection gap that exists whereby every other population has the mechanism in place, has the infrastructure, if you will, to look after each other, to help each other find jobs, 
to help each other learn of opportunities, to get into colleges, to learn that there are possibilities of careers, to educate one another, to provide inspiration and role models. These are all really important things. This population doesn't have that at all. It's a systemic thing. In the United States, typically, people at the end of their sentence when they're serving, they get out early under what's called supervised release. It's like probation or parole, we call it. And one of the terms of your supervised release, your conditional release, obviously don't get in trouble again, but one of them is you may not consort with anybody else who has a record. So in other words, you come out of prison, you don't have any money typically, you don't have a job, you don't have a car, you don't have a home, you got nothing, you don't have clothes. And the people who might be available to help you are the people you know who have records very often, and yet you're not allowed to talk to them or else they're throwing you back in prison. So you end up with really no resources, no idea where to go, what to do. Our community, many of them, have never, ever put together a resume. They've never looked for a legitimate job. They have no idea how to go about doing it. We may take it for granted, but for them, it's like learning Mandarin Chinese all of a sudden. And then some of them, you know, been down for a long time, have no experience with technology. They've never used a smartphone. You know, they don't know, you know, you need to have a laptop to go on a job board to find a job, but they don't have that or access to it. So we want to provide the resources and we want to provide the mentorship and the relationships and the support, you know, and and I and I will just say one other thing that we're really after. And it is a movement. At least that's what we're trying to in the same way that there was a women's movement and a civil rights movement. You know, and it's about time for this population to have its movement. I've spoken at length with you about the guilt and shame that I feel 30 years later. I still feel it to this day. And I am not saying it for anybody's sympathy because nobody's sympathy is going to make me feel better. And I fully take the blame for everything I've done. I don't blame anybody but myself. I was greedy and stupid. So for me, I regret my past, certainly, and mistakes I made and decisions I made. But it is everything I went through, the good and the bad, is who I am today. And I'm proud of much of who I am. I'm a Buddhist. I believe in karma. I want my karma. I, I got a lot of karma, bad karma I want to sort of correct. I want to go to heaven. You know, I want good things to come of me. I did things wrong. I paid the price. I lost friends and family and wealth and my freedom. And I paid everybody back. And this is 30 years ago. And still, I'm miserable for you know how my life went. But more importantly, so many of my brothers and sisters need to do. Because I tell you, I have met people, I consider them heroes, who have gone through the criminal justice system. And I am proud and humbled to consider many of them my friend. That was quite emotional, Richard. Before you went through this journey, what did you think of people who were accused of crimes, went to prison, or had this stigma of of trying to live their life after prison, not being able to get a job, not being able to reintegrate back into society? What was your thoughts about that, 
that generation of people when you were living the high life? Well, I knew plenty of them just from the world that I lived in. You know, it was an insulated world, sort of like if you saw the movie, you know, Goodfellas, another Scorsese film. We sort of likened ourselves to them. We spent all our time together, you know, and in doing so, we didn't have to really face judgment because we were all in it together. And some people inevitably ended up in prison and, you know, they didn't play the game as well as we could, you know, but did I always think the day would come that I would have to pay the price? Yes, it was inevitable. For some people, when I went to prison, there was a story that had appeared in the press saying that I made $10 million a year or something like that. I made more than that, but it said I made $10 million a year and I received a two-year prison sentence. When I came into prison, I was well-known already and I knew a lot of people there already, but I had a nickname initially, 10 for 2, 10 for 2. And I can't tell you how many young guys came up to me and said, man, I would do that any day of the week. I would trade your life with mine. Are you kidding? To do two years at a place like this and to have the life you led, who wouldn't do that? You know, so, um, you know, and, and to this day, I meet young guys who, you know, wish that they were part of that Wolf of Wall Street world the girls, the money, the, the Lamborghinis. And I try to tell them that, you know, something, yeah, I mean, there's certainly an allure, but on its merits, it just wasn't worth it. You know, it wasn't worth it. Thank you so much, Richard, for sharing your story. Because you don't come across as a criminal, but you were a criminal. You don't come across as somebody who, you definitely don't come across as somebody who doesn't regret what, what they did. But I think... It's testament to, to who you are today and what you're trying to do today for other people who have found themselves in, in, in a situation like prison and need to be reintegrated back into society. So well done, you. And thank you for spending time sharing your story. And I'm sure there is much, much more we could talk about. But um, I think the listeners have a very good sense of, of who Richard Bronson is and the journey you've been on. Good luck. Thank you very much, Richard, for your time. Thank you for having me, Raphael, and thanks for everybody for listening. Thanks for listening to this podcast, and please subscribe and share on social media. The aim is to upload a new episode with a new guest every week. If you want to support, help produce, or advertise on this podcast, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other means you have to make contact. All these links are in the description. This episode was produced by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by j Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.